Welcome to the final episode of Venturepreneur for season one. Uh, we're finishing off the year 2022 here, and Eli and I are going to recap the year, talk about what's happened in fintech, also look forward and think about what might be coming next. So thanks for joining us uh, this season. We look forward to having you back next season. So today we'll talk about fintech trends we've seen in the year, both you know positive and negative, new and emerging technologies we see popping up, and what we think next year might hold. So with that said, let's start with fintech trends for the year. And certainly embedded finance is a word that's been tossed around more and more. And how have large companies used embedded finance to enhance their offerings? Okay, so embedded finance, what is that? Embedded finance is basically including a financing option, integrating it into a platform that may not already have it. For example, a buy now, pay later is an example of embedded financing. A merchant's checkout may usually only have pay by debit, pay by credit card, but now there are financing options that are embedded into the platform. That is, seems to be growing more and more and more. You know, there's some companies that are playing just in the space where they're enabling embedded financing, meaning that they'll go and talk to a merchant who has both business to consumer clients and they have business to business clients. And from that, what they're basically saying to them is let us be your entire embedded finance program and we will find the lenders that will be able to fill those gaps for you and offer the financing. And so there are different forms of this, but one that we're most familiar with, again, is at checkout, a buyer comes to to buy something and at the end, they have multiple options, like a waterfall of options to, to borrow from through one application. So again, to summarize, embedded financing is simply having access to financing somewhere where you didn't normally have access. Yeah, and I think that's quite interesting, your point about how there's companies now popping up that are inserting themselves between merchants and the buy now pay later lenders uh that's kind of new you know really like most of the uh, buy now pay later growth has been lenders going in and integrating themselves at point of sale but in terms of 2022 kind of trends and review we've really seen a proliferation of these businesses charge after jafiti and and others so it's interesting to see that layer being created and offering more options to buyers at the point of sale what do you think about that business model in general yeah, I think it, it absolutely makes sense. So there are on one side merchants who are very good at doing what they do, which is selling whatever the product is that they sell. And on the other side, you have lenders who are very good at what they do, and that's lending to borrowers. And so the common gap between the two is, well, who's going to build this to connect us? You know, how do we expedite this? And so I think they found a really great business model, which essentially goes to the merchant and says, hey, let me just do one tech build for you and I'll connect you to these other lenders. And as a lender, our, our main goal is to get money out the door. And as a merchant, their main goal is to sell. No one wants to be caught up in, in building technology. So I think uh, it's a really good added value. And as a lender, it may not be your only avenue, but it's a great avenue to partner with, with companies like that. Yeah, it's fascinating to see these uh, ecosystem plays that are they're operating in the back end. Customers would never know they're even there, but... Uh, they play this crucial role in, in connecting things and making things possible, right? Now, I think yeah. of banking as a service is another example of that that's grown a lot lately, you know, allowing companies to uh, get in and uh, fintech companies and, and offer card products, lending products, do that really quickly without going through, for instance, uh, the regulatory exercise in each state if you're doing it in the US and just partnering with banks and partnering with software companies which partner with banks uh, to kind of make that possible for fintechs. Uh, so yeah. I think 
in a lot of ways, things are getting easier for fintechs to like spin up products and try stuff and really play that role of acquiring customers and providing a really cool front end that customers see value in. While in the background, there's these ecosystem providers that you know act as the plumbing and it allows the fintech to get up and running sooner and creates more competition, all that good stuff, right? By lowering barriers to entry. Yeah. I mean, we have firsthand experience with that and how much that helps um, and what the kind of added value. As a software company, one of there's a lot of challenges, don't get me wrong, but one of the benefits is the cross-border capability, regardless of where you are. It's a software. You know, you know, it's not you're not running into you know regulations and compliance and things like that. Whereas as a lender, you may run into those kind of things. And so being able to partner with companies like that and that may help they're embedded with other sort of uh, partners it's sort of a one-stop shop and helps really expedite go to market for us as lenders i mean so i'm really glad to see that trend growing i think there'll be more and more players coming along yeah speaking of like really nice front-end experiences and then using uh, other companies as the plumbing in order to get that going uh, i think one of the trends of the last year has been uh, these sort of digital bank fintechs. Uh, you know, in Canada, I'm thinking of companies like Neo Financial, Coho, and others. In in the states, there's there's a whole bunch of them, and a bunch that are op- operating the business space as well. One that comes to mind is North One, that just raised a 67 million dollar equity equity round. They're actually Canadian business, but target U.S. small businesses, and they're really building you know a digital bank. Like you can open a bank account, you can do all the things you would do with sort of your traditional financial services. But you're doing it in an app. Uh, it's very convenient, and they offer kind of new creative ways to give value to the user, so that the user, you know, obviously downloads the product and stays on it. But you know, they're able to do it because there's a bank in the background, like ticking all the regulatory boxes, and it's it's really kind of a resale and a repackaging of traditional banks' products into sort of a fintech experience, and it's kind of a nice you know, a symbiotic relationship between fintech and bank, which we've talked about before on this podcast. I actually downloaded the Neo app the other day, opened things up and, you know, it is quite slick. It's pretty interesting. I think with those types of businesses, you know, they've they've been able to clearly amass a lot of users. They've been able to raise money and amass a ton of users. And that's very, they're obviously doing something right. People see value in it. I think the real question now will be, you know, and it's not like I have access to proprietary info here. I, I, I'm kind of speculating here, but is how to what extent they'll be able to monetize that, right? It's going to be the next question. But uh, and and really the approach is a mix, right? It's like interchange fees on the card products. Uh, it's you know various account fees and credit is a huge part of that. Credit's a there's margin in it and, and there's monetization that you can do there. So it's a question of how much can you get the user to sort of use these things and, and drive that lifetime customer value up to make these things viable. So that's that's what we'll see over time. But it's been interesting to see just more and more options out there for even things just like having a deposit account through a fintech, which is, you know, relatively new. So we talked about the great sides of having, you know, all these different partners that can facilitate go to market and sort of expedite things for you. One thing that you do have to be careful about, and I think it's a learning for that we've we've gone through over the last little bit is you got to stay within sort of what makes sense in your, your unit economics because no one's doing anything for free, right? And so there are so many different vendors, but you got to sort of pick and choose the highest value ones that they're obviously going to have their own fees and so on. So that sort of balances out between using a vendor that'll expedite it and or building yourself. 
it's a very interesting game that we've sort of learned through the last 12 months, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. That's an excellent point. Like you can get a great vendor and get to market quickly. And then, but if your unit economics don't work, you're not going to be in business very long, right? So I think you do need to be choosy and you can't just go out have a ton of vendors and be paying a ton of fees left, right, and center, offering a cool product to the customer, but there's nothing left at the end of the day for you to run your business in the long run. So that's a very good point. You know, I think the lending space generally, I think, uh, deserves a mention and discussion of last year's trends. The, you know, small business loans and consumer loans to an extent, but especially small business loans, they were so quiet for a couple of years during that pandemic. Uh, 2022 was really the year of recovery. We all thought it might come sooner. We were all hoping it would come in 2021. It didn't. And we got hit with Omicron. But now finally, you know, we're really truly out of it. And we're seeing that in our own numbers in small business lending, but also across consumer lending in general. And I think really what it is, is it's a continuation of the trend that was already in place before COVID. Non-bank credit has been growing. The use of digital apps and an alternative way of looking at risk. You know, these things were just driving more and more credit creation outside the banking system. Our sense at the time was that that's going to keep going. And I think we were correct. It's just that it went on pause for a bit because of that pandemic. So 2022 deserves a mention as like an important year of recovery for that whole space. Yeah, that's interesting because isn't it, doesn't it seem like it's exact opposite of the sort of e-commerce space where there was a trend, it was sort of on steroids during COVID and a lot of companies invested so big into the continuation of it, but instead it was sort of retracting back to norm, which is yeah. a, a big part of what you see with the layoffs, right? We talked so much during the pandemic about the new normal, right? Mm-hmm. And the feeling was that the world has changed forever, right? And I was always kind of skeptical of that. And and I think I'm being proven right a little bit now. You know, I just felt like once it blows over, we'll kind of go back to doing the things we used to do. Now, that's not entirely true. Like, obviously, remote work has caught on as a, a trend and, and people like it. So it's hard to reverse it. But in terms of like face-to-face contact, how we shop, how we attend events, and like all that really has gone back to exactly how it was, right? Yeah. And I think there was a thinking that, none of those things would look the same ever again. And I always thought that was just alarmist and probably just a symptom of too much panic and anxiety. So, you know, yeah, here we are. And, and we're kind of back to a normal baseline on all of this stuff. And and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's, there was some overinvestment there. And consumer BNPL companies sort of rode that, that wave, right? Everybody was on board for consumer BNPL. And suddenly, you know, th- this, you know, there's a, obviously a lot of challenges. But all of a sudden, you, there's so much criticism about consumer BNPL as if it was just an absolutely dumb idea to begin with. And I don't think that's right. I think things are normalizing. And I think the ones that kept their unit economics and were smart about it to a certain extent, obviously, everybody over invested, but will actually be viable, strong businesses going forward. What are your thoughts on that? I think that it's a business model that makes a great deal of sense. It's being stress tested in multiple ways right now. Uh, one, the overinvestment that went in during the e-commerce boom, now things kind of normalizing again. And some of that clearly we can see was an overinvestment and layoffs have had to happen and stuff to kind of right-size the platforms again. But it's also being tested from a cost of funds perspective. You know, it's a payment option, but it's ultimately creating credit and it requires capital to create that credit. And that capital has a cost. The cost of that capital has gone up. So uh, as interest rates have increased... And so I think the real test, there's also a real test there in the business model. 
Uh, now, I, I believe the business model will survive that test because it just makes so much sense to have embedded finance makes so much sense. It makes sense to provide yeah. financing options at checkout. It's going to increase card size and conversion. There's no question, right, about any of that. I, but, you know, some of these consumer BMPL companies are heavily skewed towards 0% offers to the customer. So now they've got to raise price either on the, the merchant or seller, or they have to start introducing a price to a buyer who's used to paying 0% for their financing options. So yeah. uh, that could be tricky, right? And you could see some real demand elasticity there where with price uh, increases, you're going to really see demand go down and volumes go down. And and so that might further require right-sizing of the platforms and maybe so challenges in general in their businesses. But you know, there were just essentially perfect conditions for that business model 18 months ago. And there's a few things that have gone the wrong way on it. And so now it's really being tested, but it'll be here to stay and it'll go through some ups and downs. I have no question. I have no, no doubt about that. Yeah, I'm very bullish on the industry going forward. I think one of the main things as well in the consumer BNPL that they're feeling right now is that a lot of purchases were nice to have purchases from consumers things that are a little bit out of the budget but they can use a buy now pay later option to make it make sense right like a, a peloton was a great example of that you may not want to go spend three grand on a peloton but hey if you can finance it over x you may do it and so that was nice now with what's happening in the climate you know economically there's people are thinking twice before making those decisions so that is an indirect effect of what about what's going on right now but you know, to transition yep. a little bit into the B2B space, which is our space, I think it's a little bit different, right? I think the B2B space is actually just starting off. And so maybe that industry is sort of we're catching the downward trend, but hopefully that's all it's only up from here. But I think that there's a difference in the consumer behavior on the B2C side. Like I said, they're buying things that are nice to have so that are a little bit out of the budget, but they want to finance over time. I think on the B2B side, and we can be proven wrong, but I think most purchases that are going to be made through a supplier is for inventory, right? It's for growth of the company. And so as other financing options are being tightened and people have less access to credit, my thesis is that the B2B side of it will actually be needed more and more. Now it's on us to underwrite the risk properly and make sure that the money goes out to the right people and it gets paid back and it's a viable business. But I think from a demand standpoint, this sort of climate is actually conducive to what we're doing. I don't know. What do you think? I think it's a completely different use case. I think that we're designing the product to, in a lot of ways, sort of mimic the convenience that you see in the B2C product. But mm-hmm. to your point, it's used to finance a completely different purchase, which should have a measurable return attached to it. And uh, you know that makes it quite powerful. And we'll, we'll be able to create new credit for a bunch of business transactions that are currently cash on demand. And you know, as a result of being cash on demand, they're only fulfilling a small part of the potential like that that underlying business could be growing faster if it could get credit at point of sale when they're buying to run their business like i think we can actually create a lot of economic growth and see a lot of small businesses grow faster through this product so i think that's really exciting Uh, i think for b2b bnpl if 2022 for consumer bnpl is like headwinds left right center cost of funds and e-commerce kind of deflating and so forth uh, i think on the b2b side completely different set of trends. And I think it's really the beginning of an aha moment that this makes a ton of sense and it's going to be, you know, a major business model. And I think we're not even done with that aha moment because it seems to me like most people still don't understand it. You know, it reminds me of when we first started merchant growth. We first started small business loans. 
that was I did the research for the business plan in 2009. We started in 2010. At the time, I interviewed small business owners. Nobody had a clue that you could get a business loan other than their, from their bank, right? right? It was like no one really knew about it, and and that's what got me really excited at the time. I just realized like, okay, well, this is going to grow, right? There's no reason for it not to grow, and I think that's where we're at with B2B BNPL. Like even within the fintech industry, you know, go to conferences and so forth. I think there's very little awareness of how big B2B BNPL can be, but we're starting to, people are starting to notice companies are starting to get formed, uh, you know, some money's getting raised and so on. So we're really early days and, you know, it really is like, you know, consumer BNPL circa like 2014 or something like that. Dave, we may have to cut that part out guys. I'm sorry. This is too, it's too good of a pitch for to, to create competitors for us, but uh, no, I, I agree with you. I think it's early stage. I think it's really exciting what's going to come up, but you know, it sounds easier said than done. Obviously there's a lot of hurdles to go through, but uh, excited to be kind of on that journey to, to be early in this, in this industry. So yeah, to all uh, potential competitors, it's really freaking hard to do it. So <laughs> all right, Dave. So let's switch gears a little bit to sort of the last trend I wanted to talk about on the 22 uh, the year, for the year 2022 before we move on to sort of what we think is coming up and that last topic is open banking i know there's uh, a lot to be said there but why don't i just leave it to you to give me your thoughts on open banking and where we are with that yeah i think it's quite frustrating for the fintech industry in canada that we're behind some of the other co- countries like the uk and really what it is is giving a customer whether they're a consumer or small business the power to share their financial data with anyone they want to share it with and for fintechs to be able to get that data and offer better services, currently uh, a lot of um, that data moves through sort of inefficiently and, and is prone to kind of errors or you might get a certain amount of history from one bank or less with another. You know, you might fail to get a connection a bunch of the times because the connections are based on screen scrapes as opposed to true backend integrations. And really the banks are only going to build those when they're forced to because there's not really enough incentive for them. Yeah. And that's that's why I need the regulators to come in and create competition and and force a certain standard of how this information flows and gets shared, right? So you yeah, know, what is screen scrape? Uh just uh, you know, I, I wasn't familiar with that till recently. So maybe a value for you to explain, you know, with screen scrape as opposed to actual real open banking. Yeah. So there's ways in which financial information can get shared from the person who's uh in information who owns that information. So let's say I've got a bank account. I want to share read-only access with the financial services provider to underwrite me or whatnot. I could use a piece of technology which will allow me to log in to my bank account. And then that technology scrapes the screen essentially and just pulls all the transaction data out of it and provides it in you know raw XML format to the financial services provider. I want to have that information. So, you know, it's prone to error a number of ways, you know, like screens can change in terms of their layouts and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, uh, the screen scraping tech needs to get updated to handle that. Passwords need to get reset, stuff like that, which will trip the connection. So it's really kind of like very sort of rugged and early stage sort of approach to sharing data, right? And and it's mm-hmm. kind of being done without requiring the... the uh, cooperation uh, of the bank and that's why they've gotten going and already it gets tons of use people clearly want to use these things but if you could actually have proper connections built they'll be so much more reliable than the current state okay great so 
screen scraping, like you're saying, is essentially just getting access to a read-only thing, whereas Open Bank seems like it's a lot more integrated and embedded um, on an ongoing basis to someone's bank account or their financial information, and it'll help people, lenders like ourselves, be more proactive, I guess. You know, any any sort of examples that you can give of that or, you know, explain that a little bit further on the open banking side? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's fintechs that are offering analytic services. So by having an ongoing bank connection, they can analyze what's going on and provide helpful alerts around your cash flow and stuff like that. For companies like ourselves, Merchant Growth, we provide lending products and we provide ongoing lending products, for instance, revolving lines of credit and top-ups on existing term loans. After a small business has paid us down for some period of time, we'll offer a top-up. Those things could be done a lot more conveniently and a lot more automated if we had this ongoing data feed that was reliable. And we could, you know, essentially just, it could be as easy as a text message to the borrower and say, hey, would you like this top-up? Reply yes or no, and that's it you know, no other action required on their part, right? But because these connections today aren't entirely reliable, in theory, they can update. But like I said earlier, with the password issues and stuff like that, oftentimes the connection starts to break. You end up having to reestablish that connection. And it's just, you have to bother the individual to kind of reconnect. And they don't want to do that. We don't want to make them do that. Uh, it really yeah. doesn't help anyone. So those, those connections would allow those types of, you know, interactions to just go a lot more smoothly. And Dave, you and I were at a conference just last week and um, sorry for the company. I, I can't remember the name right now, but it's a company that does essentially like collections. They help companies do collections in a more automated way and a more sort of customer friendly way. He said a stat that was really interesting to me. I don't remember the exact amount, but essentially that majority of people that are late on payments are mostly because they forgot. You know, an open banking is such an important tool in that space where instead of just waiting and being reactive to things, companies can use open banking to be more proactive about it. You know, like merchants can send more reminders or for example, or us as lenders may say, hey, you know, we've noticed based on your cash flow that X, Y, and Z keeps happening and you have this coming up. Would you like, some, uh, you know, would you like X amount of money to, to cover that? So this kind of more proactive approach will be so much better for the end user once open banking actually establishes itself in Canada. Yeah, I think that it would be hugely valuable to those people. Like the the kind of examples you gave are are examples of you know payment reminders and, and helping people stay on top of cash flow. It's sort of like if cash is tight, right? And you know it might be stressful to get reminders, right? But like, would you rather get a reminder ahead of time or would you rather a payment balance and then you have to deal with the consequences, right? Yeah, that's more stressful, right? So you know, absolutely, I think that sharing data and having fintechs interact with you in a more proactive way and, and make it so it's easier to, to manage your finances. I, I don't, you know, that's a great thing. I think people will embrace it overall. And I think people will, will recognize that it's worth sharing the data to get those benefits. Some people are more protective of their data than others and might feel differently, but I think most will see the value. Yeah. So hopefully the government's listening in and, uh, you know, we can persuade them a little bit to move on this, but, uh, no, that was a good recap uh, on open banking. So let, let's move sort of to the last topic and, and look forward a little bit. Um, what are you excited for in 2023, Dave? And, and what do you see you know, as trends coming up? I think for next year, it's going to be a super exciting time for B2B BNPL. We're going to see some of these business models really get tested and a few will start to scale inevitably, I believe. And I think that 
small business and consumer credit providers are going to see growth in their loan books after a couple of slow years during that pandemic. The sort of long-term trend is resuming. And I think we'll see that in 2023, barring, you know, knock on wood, something really strange in the environment uh, happening. You know, we'll be watching interest rates closely to see where they actually level out, and whether inflation can get under control. You know, these macro things obviously have a, a major effect on, on financial service providers, especially credit providers, and especially BNPL in, in the consumer space. So, you know, I don't know a crystal ball. I don't know exactly how that'll shake out, but it'll be interesting to watch. Um, and, you know, but I do believe that business model will make it through. Yeah. Okay. And then I think from my side, this is a tough question. Again, it's we don't have the crystal ball, but there's things that I'm, ho- I'm hoping continue and there's things that I think uh, will also happen. So I do hope that the B2B BNPL continues on its trajectory and, and growth and sort of starts making more sense to people in the B2B industry the way it did on the B2C side. I think that's a direct thing that I'm hoping for. But uh, what I think will continue to happen is on the open banking side, there are so many different technologies that that are, are coming from it, from the idea of open banking and how they're facilitating things between merchants and, and borrowers, between lenders and the small business lenders and the small businesses themselves but you know that's not going to happen here in canada yet until the regulations catch up but i think it'll be a good test case uh if it continues growing in the uk continues growing in australia continues growing in the us there'll be more and more for people uh in canada and in the lending space to bring to the government as as a case study right and to push this along so i'm hoping that continues but you know, other than that, obviously there's challenges with uh, the everybody talking about a recession. We'll see how that plays out. But yeah, I think overall I'm excited for 2023 to see to see where this industry is going to go. Likewise, and just want to say thanks so much to all of you who've listened to episodes throughout this season of Entrepreneur. Uh, we started this podcast to have interesting conversations and have a little bit of fun, and I'm actually surprised at how much fun we've had with it so look forward to continue doing it with the next season starting next year so thanks a lot and uh, happy holidays and happy new year